We are following the New Testament lessons for the Advent season. And so our text this morning is is the text from Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. This is a text which upon first glance might not strike one as an Advent text. But its inclusion in the readings for the Advent season is quite fitting because it is a text which calls us back to and, and shapes us in the central realities, the luminous realities that we celebrate in celebrating the incarnation of our Lord. So we'll look at the text under four headings. They're there on your bulletin outline. Uh, the introduction, the covenant, the scriptural witness, the introduction, the covenant, the scriptural witness, and the benediction. So the introduction first. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, is the end of an exhortation by the apostle on mutual forbearance, mutual acceptance and tolerance between the weak, a group he calls the weak, and another group, which he designates as the strong, in the body of Christ. The text says, accept one another, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Christ did not come to please himself, but he has richly welcomed us. He is borne reproach for your sake. And so the apostle says, we are to receive, to welcome richly one another with all our various different scruples, differences of perspective, personality. We're to welcome one another with charity and grace because Jesus Christ has accepted us. Now in the Roman church, a mixed Jewish-Gentile church, the weak were most likely comprised mainly of Jews. In Paul's terminology, the weak are the people with more scruples, not less. Today we tend to think of people with lots of scruples as morally strong. But when Paul uses the weak, the weak almost always have more rules. And uh, so, most likely, the Jews would have had scruples about the law and about various days and foods and the like that Gentiles wouldn't have had. And the strong Gentiles would be tempted to judge their weaker brethren. And so what the apostle does in the text is he shows us that the unity of the weak and the strong in the body of Christ, the basis, the basis for treating one another with dignity and respect lies in the unity of Jew and Gentile, in the one new man, the church, the body of Christ, which Christ has established in his death. This accept one another introduction to this text can easily slide off from view as we go through the rest of the text. But it's a very important point, and we'll return to it, Lord willing. So this brings us to the second point. And the second point is the covenant. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the Jews, or a servant to the circumcised. Jesus takes the form of a servant, a slave, 
indeed a suffering slave. And he does so first to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. Now imagine how this would echo with the strong Gentiles in Rome who might have wanted to look down at the weaker Jews with all their rules. Jesus comes first to the Jewish people. He's a servant. He comes to seek and save, first and foremost in his own words, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so the Gentiles in the Roman church are reminded that they owe a debt to Israel. That Israel is this rich root of the olive tree and these wild Gentiles have been grafted into this root. And the root supports them and not vice versa. Jesus comes, the text says, he comes to Israel on behalf of God's truth. Is the way the NIV puts it. That is, on behalf of God's covenant fidelity. God's unswerving faithfulness to the covenant sealed by circumcision. And so Advent then, among many other things, is profoundly about the history of Israel. You'll notice that if you pay attention to the Advent texts that are in the lectionary, that are in the system of readings we use. They drive us back to the promises and the prophecies of Israel. And so Jesus, Advent reminds us, and as we often say around here, Jesus cannot be Scandinavian. He cannot simply drop down out of heaven and save you from your sins. He comes as Isaiah's promised servant. Had Jesus been Scandinavian and just dropped down from heaven, the, the texture and the shape of the way the gospels preach would hardly change in 80 or 90 percent of our churches. But Paul is insistent that he is a circumcised Jew among Jews, an Israelite among the nation of Israel, and that his appearance as such demonstrates God's utter fidelity. But the text says that he came to confirm, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. As servant, he fulfills the Davidic covenant and further back the promises the Mosaic covenant made. But at the same time, he's fulfilling the promises to the patriarchs. It would be hard to find a text more compact and concise than this one. Showing us the unity of all the Old Testament covenant arrangements, covenant administrations. There are not many Old Testament covenants. There's one organic covenant and it's rooted in, it's structured by these promises made to the patriarchs. And this whole panorama from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob down through Moses and David, through the exile, through the return, down to the current forlorn Israel in the time of Christ under Roman rule. All of this covenantal history, Paul says, Christ comes to confirm it, to fulfill it, to establish it, and as such, he comes to vindicate the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God. 
And so Advent is in a primary way a celebration of this faithful action of God in Jesus Christ. We look back and we can see the fidelity of God. But this is not all. The very design of the covenant, the great aim of the promises to Abraham and the fathers, includes the blessing of all the families of the earth. So in addition to confirming the promises made to the Jewish patriarchs, Christ comes as a servant, and verse 9 says, that we Gentiles, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is the heart of Paul's whole apostolic ministry. God's promises to Abraham and to his seed envisioned this wide and free mercy going out beyond the borders of Israel, going out to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that we, too, also might glorify God for his mercy. This, beloved, is why we who are Gentiles stand or sit here today. We with whom God has made no covenant. Right? God makes no covenant with America. There's no covenant between God and the citizens of New Jersey or Europe. He's made no covenant with us. But we've been the re- gathered into this covenant. We've been made recipients of this free mercy flowing from the covenant he makes with Abraham and the fathers, fulfilled in Christ the servant. We take this for granted. I've spoken of this before, probably because we're Westerners and we're Americans. We just think it's, it's the natural state of affairs that people from New York and New Jersey are worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. But it's not. It's a result of the fidelity of God to Abraham and the the confirmation of that fidelity in Jesus so that you might glorify God for his mercy. It's a stunning thing that we are here. An absolutely stunning, unbelievable, improbable thing. We're to be like Holy Simeon, holding the baby Jesus, saying, My eyes have seen the salvation of God prepared in the sight of all the nations. A light of revelation for the Gentiles, Simeon says, and for the glory of the people of Israel. This is the heart of our advent, of our Christian joy. We who are strangers to the covenants of promise, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, without God, having no hope, you have been brought near into this arrangement by the blood of Christ. So what does Advent mean for us? It means we glorify God for his mercy. And we do it in, and we do it with, and we do it through the rich Jewish root of the church. And there could be no stronger motivation than this for welcoming one another in the church as Christ has welcomed us. 
Paul, the New Testament, thinks of the central division in history not as a division between one political party or another or one race or another. It's the division between Jew and Gentiles. And Paul, as part of his gospel, announces that in Christ that division has been shattered, been broken down. And if God can heal that division, he is saying to us, then he can certainly help us accept one another and welcome one another with all of our petty, weak versus strong scruples. These things should never impair our charity. Christ comes to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us one to another. So Advent, then, is about welcoming. It's about welcoming those, be they Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, left or right, black or white, vegetarian or carnivore, weak or strong. It's about welcoming them because Christ has welcomed them and accepted and welcomed you. That's the covenant. So the third thing here is that I want to look at is the scriptural witness And here we get four citations. Four citations. Two from the Psalms, one from the law, one from the prophets. Thus covering all three major divisions of the Hebrew Bible. And thus testifying to the fact that these promises that God's glory and mercy would come to us Gentiles are pervasive. They're scattered throughout the whole of the Old Testament. If you look here, the first citation is from Psalm 18. Psalm 18. King David, here is a type of the Messiah. And he has incorporated, David has, all these non-Israelite surrounding Gentile nations into his empire. And he treats them as if they belong to God. Therefore, the text says, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your names. It's it's a picture of the Davidic king, ultimately Jesus Christ himself, leading the Gentile nations in praise to Israel's God. John Calvin has a wonderful uh, saying that he says that Christ is the chief conductor of our hymns to God. Christ is the chief conductor of our hymns. Meaning, Jesus is divine and we worship him. But he's also a human, a man. He's our elder brother. And he leads us in the worship of the Father. Now here it's not clear. It's not clear whether the Gentiles are merely spectators or participants. But that ambiguity is quickly removed. By the next citation, which is from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now here it's clear that we Gentiles now rejoice with the covenanted people of God. And the third citation in verse 11 is from Psalm 117. And here no nation... No nation is excluded. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praise to him, all you peoples. 
There's no people group, there's no tribe, there's no tongue, there's no boundaries. And the last citation, this, the one in verse 12, is a messianic prophecy which we heard read this morning from Isaiah chapter 11. It says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One will arise to rule over the nations, and in him the Gentiles will hope. The root of Jesse means the descendant of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. This is a prophecy about Christ coming to rule over the Gentiles, and us Gentiles having hope in him. But again, I want you to notice this. It is the Jewishness of Jesus the offspring of Jesse, the one who fulfills the promises to Israel, who in doing so brings us Gentiles who were without hope, hope. And this note of hope leads to the, to the benediction, the final point, which is here really a prayer. Um, and here the apostle picks up this idea of hope and he expands on it. He says in verse 13, May the God of hope God who is the source, the object of our hope. No God, no hope. Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the source and ground of hope in the world. And you can see here then that Paul thinks those four Old Testament texts he just cited, he thinks they should inspire in you hope. I mean, Advent is about the rekindling of our hope. We have a justifiable expectation in God precisely because we can look backwards. We can look across centuries and centuries. And we can see God's truthfulness vindicated. We're not manufacturing this hope. There are all, the world is full of all sorts of false and manufactured hope. The apostles' hope is profoundly rooted in history. It's rooted in these promises made to Israel. Otherwise, your hope is sheer presumption. He has confirmed the promises to the patriarchs. In doing so, he has gathered us from the nations in accord with the four texts we just cited into the people of God. And so this benediction at the end of the text is a prayer that this God of hope, this God of unconquerable hope, would fill us with all joy, and peace as we trust in him. Advent, joy, and holy peace. Now, joy and peace, as wondrous as they are here, they're subordinate to something even more glorious, namely hope. Namely hope. Hope could arguably be called the Christian virtue. It was in many ways a distinguishing mark of the early church. It provides a stark and provided a stark contrast against the prevailing hopelessness of the ancient world. Hope is something we need to think a lot about. And Advent gives you the occasion to do that. 
We need to think about whether our hopes are solid, whether they're sure, whether they're grounded, or whether they're just fabricated, or whether they're false, or whether they're delusional. Someone quipped once somewhere, I can't remember where, that man can live three days without water and about five minutes without air, but not one minute without hope. Not one minute without genuine hope. So even joy and peace are ordered to produce hope. Notice that in the text. May the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with joy and peace in believing so that for this end, by the power of the Spirit, you might overflow with hope. This is one of the greatest benedictions in all Scripture. This means that hope, genuine hope, is the creation of the Holy Spirit so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might overflow in hope. No power of the Sovereign Spirit, no hope. Because the Spirit Himself, He cannot be faked or conjured. He's the gift of the future, the earnest, the pledge of our inheritance. And that means the the Spirit is your future hope tasted now. And so here again, we see that hope not only looks backwards. Paul's done a lot of backwards looking in the text. But it looks forward. We look forward. God has confirmed the promises in Christ. And nonetheless, we're saved in hope. We're called to abound in future-oriented hope. We look for. We look for. We expect the events that will accompany the end. We say this every week in the creed when we say, and we look for. Those two words. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's not we simply assent that at some point there will be a resurrection of the dead, that at some point there will be a new heavens and an earth. It's a statement of yearning we look for. We look for the future full in gathering of Israel. We look for the full in gathering of the nations. We look for the consummation of the kingdom. We are by the power of the Holy Spirit to exalt in the coming glory of God, which as we also heard in the Isaiah text, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And now we can see this is, in fact, a profoundly applicable Advent text. It strikes almost every note, which is to shape the lives of the people of God. And it does it by grounding them in the action that God has already taken. By becoming a servant in Jesus. So I'm going to briefly conclude with four four quick exhortations or applications here. I think they come naturally from the text. But So if we start at the beginning of the text, again, we have not read the text rightly if we too quickly glide over verse 7. We are to welcome one another with all of our sometimes exasperating differences, with all of our opinions, because Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. And so, 
If Advent doesn't make you more considerate or more patient or more tolerant or, in short, kinder, then the light of the Advent Christ is not working in our lives. Second, Advent, if it's taken seriously, it must produce a reinvigorated life of singing. Notice the words piled up in these Old Testament citations. Sing, praise, rejoice, extol, laud. We always have to kind of call ourselves back to this, don't we? At least some of us who may struggle with this. Mumbling has to be replaced with exuberant, robust, focused prayer. This can be hard for some of us. That's okay. Use Advent as a time to get better at singing because we're commanded to sing this way. And to do less than this is to denigrate the realities that we purport to be celebrating. Right? Some of these things cannot simply be um, sung in a sort of haphazard, mediocre way without the, the dissonance between the glorious thing that's being sung about and the indifference with which we sing being striking. Accept one another, sing. Third, Advent's about, as we saw, it's about the fulfillment of all these promises. Promises to Israel. And that means Advent is not purely a vertical event. Meaning it's not, again, it's not Jesus just dropping down from heaven to become man. He doesn't, God does indeed descend from heaven to earth in Jesus Christ. But in doing so, he bisects this long horizontal history of Israel's ordeal and he brings it to completion. And that means something about this season. Advent should drive us back to the beginning, to the Old Testament, to the patriarchs, to the law, to the prophets, to the covenant, to the Psalms, because that's what it does for Paul in this very text. So now, this season is a good time. You know, often, there are a lot of traditions, wonderful ones indeed, we have them in my family, where you may read to your children or to yourself, or, or in some other context, these wonderful infancy narratives, the gospel passages, the Christmas stories. But you need to be reading the things Paul cites when he talks about the advent appearing of Christ as the servant to fulfill all the promises. He's reading from Genesis and Exodus, and Isaiah, and the Psalms. So it's a good time to get familiar, again, with the drama that has come to culmination in Jesus. Because this is your history. This is your, as I've said before, this is your Ancestry.com. The Old Testament is your Ancestry.com. And fourth, Advent is about genuine hope. It's about the renewal of genuine hope. You may not be a naturally hopeful person or an optimistic person. That's not what's in view here. I'm not a naturally optimistic person. Someone said to me, you're a kind of glass glass half empty guy, aren't you? I said, no, I'm more like if you look closely, the glass is a little more than half empty guy. (laughs) So, so, you know, if, if this sort of thing doesn't come naturally to you, 
That's fine. Because what have we already seen? The hope envisioned in the text rests on the God of hope, the God who raises the dead, the God who calls things into being who do, which do not exist. Right? This is not about having a sunny disposition, although that's a lovely thing. Right? This is not about being naturally optimistic or positive. This hope is created by the spirit of the Christ who God raised from the dead. The God who proved his fidelity through the contorted and disobedient, exiled centuries of Israel's history. Look, in other words, Paul is saying to us today. He's saying to us, look at Israel's history. Look at this long, harrowing ordeal of the most appalling suffering. There are whole centuries of this history where it looks like the promises are nonsense. Where the psalmist says, you promised us a Davidic king to rule forever on your throne, and now the city's in flames, and the the temple's been trampled, we have no king, we're being carried off into exile. Do you think, we all feel this, right? That sometimes it doesn't seem like the promises of God hold good. That they don't apply to us. That somehow God has abandoned us, or left us, or that he's not faithful to his word. Get this. Your forefathers in the faith had centuries like that. If you're a baseball fan, you know the the famous saying about the Chicago Cubs, anybody can have a bad century. Um, Israel had bad centuries, really bad centuries. But, But we look back from where we stand and we see this. God was utterly faithful, often in surprising ways to be sure often mysteriously, but utterly faithful to the covenant. Do you think he's not going to be faithful to you then? To yours? To your family? To your little situation? Because you've struggled for a month or two or a decade? Right? Somebody in this building here is going to look back on this 100 or 200 or 5,000 years from now and say God has been faithful to those people at Westminster Church. God can make you abound in hope by the power of his spirit. So, one last thing on this hope. As wonderful as the fulfillment of all the promises are, they have been fulfilled in Jesus in such a way that there yet remains. Right? This grand, stunning, cosmic series of divine acts which is going to bring everything to its consummation. And so to have your hope nourished, the past alone will not do. Let's be clear, we have to go back to the past. The text does that. But that's not going to be enough. We must continually be filled with the power of the spirit of the God of hope. That's why also you'll notice at Advent, I remember this how struck I was and confused by this years ago when I was looking through these Advent texts. And you realize very quickly many of them are about the second coming, not the birth of Jesus at Christmas. That is, of course, by design in the wisdom of the church because the first coming and the second coming are sort of two acts of one movement. They're locked in together. The first coming is the second coming in advance. The first coming is the kingdom already being tasted. So the very nature of Jesus' appearing in the flesh is that 
It bends us toward the end. And so Advent is a time to ask about the nature, the reality, and the focus, the locus of our hope. It is to be forward-looking. And that means we long for, we yearn for the salvation of the nations. We yearn for the vindication of the martyrs and the resurrection of the dead, for the second advent of Christ in great power and glory, having come as a servant. This longing, this kind of longing where you meet it, it can't be contrived. It, it, it can't be artificially grafted onto a life which is dominated by the concerns of this age. You are to yearn for the end of all things. The Bible commands our emotions. Did you, did you, it, you know, you might say, well, I, you know, I, I, can't, I, I can't yearn for these things. Well, this, you have to cultivate this. God often commands us to have certain sets of emotions. You know, you see that in the New Testament, right? He'll say, weep with those who weep. Or, you know, uh, mourn. Or rejoice. Right? This is a command from the sovereign God to your interior emotional life. And so there's a kind of yearning that is to be kindled in us. And this isn't a burden. This is, this is a delightful labor. It's, about, it's the result of being filled with joy and peace, the text says, by trusting in the God who's the God of hope, the God of the future, the God of resurrection. Just as the gift of Christ of God's Son, came through the descent of the Spirit, overshadowing the Virgin. That same Spirit overshadows the virginal bride of Jesus Christ. That we might accept one another. That we might sing. That we might celebrate the promises. And that we might not only possess, but we might abound in and overflow in hope through the power of that same Spirit. Amen.